Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled today to be sitting down again with Mr. Eric Weinstein. And today, I think we're going to dive into a topic that is very pertinent to our modern politicized reality and central banking more generally, which is this concept of kayfabe and kayfabrication. Is this something that you coined, Eric, or where, where did this term come from? Well, kayfabe is actually coming from the wrestling world, the world of professional mm -hmm. wrestling. And kayfabrication was basically a mashup of to fabricate and kayfabe. And the idea that we are going to have institutions, we're going to have institutions push an imaginary reality that they've constructed uh, onto us uh, and force us to live in it is sort of this response that institutions have when the world is unpredictable uh, and therefore dangerous to slow-moving, non-agile structures like a large institution. Um, but it's also boring, so they can afford to um, have really slow-moving um, programs, if you will, to replace reality with this sort of ersatz uh, existence. And that, that process I've called K-fabrication because I see us increasingly not living authentic lives. We're leading lives that are um, denatured so that we don't disturb the institutions and the, the tiny few who operate and profit from them. Yes, I think this is a very interesting concept and I could not help but recognize how much it resonates with what I'll generalize as kind of the Bitcoiner worldview. And so just to throw out some definitions here, kayfabe, I believe you've described as the system of stratified lies that undergirds professional wrestling. Professional wrestling specifically like uh, WWF or WWE, I'm not even sure what the name of the company is anymore, but this um, theater, basically, it's athlete, athletic theater in a way where they're putting on a show, there's characters, there's storylines, there's a drama, but the actual sport itself is essentially fabricated, right? They're, they're not competing in real terms. This isn't, this isn't a football game or a basketball game. These guys kind of are following a script, I guess you would say. And so this process of K-fabrication or fabrication is something you've analogized to where we actually go through the process of transitioning from reality towards something more like kayfabe. And as I understand it, um, this arises out of attempts to deliver a dependably engaging product for a mass audience by removing the unpredictable upheavals that imperil the participants. So this is a writing of illusion into reality or a blending of illusion and reality. And there seems to be a feedback between the two, right? There, um, there's maybe we're through our idealizations, we're creating a demand for some type of fantasy or illusory reality. And then those fantasies and illusions actually further distort our relationship to truth. And there's just kind of this vicious feedback. So now you've argued that this, I guess, American, maybe not American politics, politics more generally has become K-fabricated. And this is in relation to uh, perhaps it's boringness or dangerousness, which you've you've laid out as kind of the two key elements that lead to something becoming k fabricated. Yeah, that um, if you think about it, um, you have all sorts of situations in which. We strive for something to be authentic, but we don't notice that inauthenticity cannot be separated from authenticity. 
um, that in, in a certain sense, our art is a, uh, dis, uh, if it's good art, it's usually a distilling um, filter that shows you a distilled reality. Mm. You know, an author, for example, might choose to write a story that particularly teases out one point. Um, and, you know, modern life wouldn't give you anything that clean without an author's uh, help. So in a certain way, you have to ask yourself whether your your hopes for complete authenticity are reasonable to begin with. Now, that said, I think that the institutions have capitalized on our need for regularity. And so I believe what they do is that they, they come up with these long narrative arcs about why things are happening the way they're happening. You know, for example, if a candidate is connecting with the voters, but is not doing the, the bidding of the party, that person will be called a populist. And populist is a cue that the associated media should dump on this person because what it, it, it's sort of code, coded speech. It says, this is somebody who's not singing from the hymnal. They're not under control. Mm. So in a certain sense, um, yeah, we, we've got all these institutions that are engaged in levels of deception that are necessary to cover extraction. We built up a lot of wealth inside of advanced economies. And, you know, you, you imagine, for example, that you have a, a very successful bakery, you have a fleet of de delivery trucks, and then the bakery gets into some trouble and people start selling off the seats from the delivery trucks, the carburetor, the transmissions. And pretty soon those trucks don't run anymore um, because mm -hmm. people have been extracting value from the functional unit, which is the business. And so in a certain sense, that's what's happened to the United States and other developed countries is that we have a, a leadership class that seems to be particularly adept at selling off the future in order to pay for their consumption in the present. And so whether it's through printing or sweetheart deals um, or legislation written by lobbyists, any of the, the standard games that people play in Washington, D.C. and in New York uh, and in Silicon Valley, we have a tremendous amount of extraction going on. And then there always needs to be a cover story as to why the extraction is taking place because mm -hmm. nobody's sympathetic with people saying that the wealthy should put even more into their pockets at the expense of everyone else. And so that's where we are. Yeah, this is, I have a quote from you here and you said, in general, the idealism of every age is the cover story of its thefts, unquote. And I think, I mean, it's a, it's a very apt description for the, especially the fiat reality we currently inhabit. You know, you have Jerome Powell on TV saying we're going to print money to solve all these problems and inflation's not doubt, an issue. I doubt, I doubt he would say that. <laughs> you usually say something about much, excuse me, usually say something about much needed stimulus or relief. Right. Right. Or assistance or unfreezing. There are all sorts of different names for what people do, but it's never print money. You're absolutely right. Um, I may be <laughs> reciting it in my own translation here, but you're right. No, no, no. Quantitative easing, relief, increase the debt ceiling, all of these euphemisms to disguise the extraction, as you say. Um, so I... I think you made the deep point. We say inauthenticity is inseparably bound up with authenticity in some way. And the way I understand this is that, you know, I think Terrence McKenna said this, all language is a lie. So we're all, we're, we need these communication protocols to connect with one another and interoperate and, and collaborate, compete effectively. But the symbol is never the referent, right? The map is not the territory. So there's always this gap between reality and our representation of it. 
where we can introduce noise or deception or or incoherence of some kind. And it appears to me like this is nowhere more prevalent than politics today. I mean, it's almost entirely, as to your point, it's almost like professional wrestling entirely. People don't take it seriously at all. And I would argue that this has a lot to do with breaking the tie, right, between what money was intended to represent, which was gold. So the dollar was the symbol for gold, right, for this referent. But then when we broke away from that, you're essentially giving the political layer unlimited latitude to spin up whatever illusion it wants, fund it via printing um, or other extractive methods. And there's no check on these illusions. There's no way for anyone to call their bluff. Um, because, you know, historically gold was... Satoshi would disagree with you. Well, Satoshi is, has given us the way to call the bluff. Um, but we're, it's really? early days, right? So yeah. is there a connection here, I guess, is between... And my perspective would be that there's a connection between the inauthenticity injected into money and the inauthenticity that has come to inhabit our political speech. Sure. Yeah. 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 Those things are very closely tied together because you should think about printing as deferral and redirection of consequence. Mm -hmm. So we both defer the reckonings and they will happen now after there's much more Tinder built up in the system um that's one issue and then it's also a redirection because if you print the money that that is that you dilute everyone who already holds something and then you direct where the money you just printed is to go then you're not only devaluing and debasing the currency you're also redistributing the wealth mm -hmm. And so those two features, of course, you're always going to tell us that you're doing it for public spirited reasons, mm -hmm. but you're diluting and you're redirecting um, based not on gold, but of course on lead, mm. different element. It's by virtue of Weber's theory that a government is a monopoly on violence, that the government can throw you in jail if you refuse to play ball by its its rules and how does it do that by maintaining a monopoly on violence so effectively you when you when you stop being gold-based you become lead-based so that's a great point that <clears throat> politics itself the reason we're even listening to one another's political leanings and having these political debates is ultimately because the monopoly on violence works, which is to say that violence can be wielded to extract property. And again, violence in the broadest sense of uh, this could be coercion, could be compulsion, could be a nasty letter from you know one of the alphabet agencies. But the fact that there is a central group that can impose itself on your property rights is the reason we have uh we've become so attuned to one another's political leanings so i would love to hear your thoughts on this i mean my hypothesis is that this emphasis on politics as such an important part of our individual and group identity is based on the viability of property so the fact that our individual opinions can so affect one another has kind of forced us into this very politicized culture. And I would, so here, here's maybe a thought experiment. If property were not viable, would politics matter, right? Assume we're all invincible. Our person and property cannot be assailed against. Why would we even care about one another's opinions, right? We would just you think one thing, I think another. If we don't agree, we just go our separate ways, live in separate places. Well, so this is where I always get into trouble with the libertarian community, maybe the Bitcoiners and people who are convinced that Ayn Rand is a great author. Um, you have certain issues 
which require coordination, like a prisoner's dilemma, mm -hmm. right? Now, the instant I say that, the libertarian community says, okay, I, I can look two moves ahead. Once he says that there are reasons to coordinate coercive, you know, to coordinate coercion, that's going to get used for everything. They're going to want to tell me what milk to buy, what shoes to wear, when I can go to bed, and F that. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's the problem, is, is that there is a small region of human activity that does require coordinated behavior. And we don't really fully know what to do because the people who understand that seem to want to use authoritarian power to tell us all, um, you know, whether to brush our teeth starting from the top or the bottom because they know and, and we're the unwashed and they want to tell us what to do. Or I want to say, you know, you're not the boss of me. Like they, you know, you're treating you're treating your government like it's your the the parents of teenagers. I hate you, mom and dad. You know that 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 sort of energy. And you know, with the current leadership, it's very hard to stand up for the institutions. But we have had better leaders in the past. We've had leaders who believe in liberty and who understand that. You can't go, in, can't go around claiming that everything is the Spanish flu uh, of the early 20th century or that it's always the Japanese and the Germans are attacking. Um, but look, government serves a function. Markets have lots of unincorporated externalities. There's a world of uh, violence from without, foreign countries and the like. There's no shortage of reasons to have a government and there's no shortage of people who want to exploit all of those reasons to have ever more government of the most invasive kind and it's left to a tiny number of people who are neither of the opinion that you can just let the market take care of everything because of reasons already spoken to nor can you just allow the authoritarians to take over because they'll always tell you that they know best fair enough i you know we haven't gone deep into the into market failures yet. And I know yeah. that's a point where maybe we, we have some disagreement on, but we can get into it later. Assuming there are market failures, assuming there are things that the market can't solve for, and then we do need this, you know, non-market authoritarian mechanism at times. Uh, I guess the most important thing there is that the people who are governed have some check on this body that can coerce them. This apparatus of coercion, compulsion, and violence we call the state. The individuals that construct that state for their own benefit, presumably to solve market failures, need to be able to call its bluff or cast a vote um, against it. And that's historically what gold was, right? If you were misbehaving you're mistreating your people or you're being irresponsible in terms of monetary policy, gold would leave your country. And so in this way, this is the reason I've argued that, that gold historically was the regulator of governments effectively. It regulated the balance of payments. But as we know, you know, central banks have cornered the market on gold. They have more or less detached the current financial system from it, although they still accumulate a lot of gold for themselves. So what is, okay, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about central banking and kayfabe. So kayfabe, as you said, things that are very boring and very dangerous very tend boring. to suffer from fabrication. And it's surprising how many things have those two attributes because they, they sound initially a little bit contradictory. Yes, yes, they do. Um, but upon further reflection, specifically on central banking, I can't think of anything more boring or more dangerous. Boring in the sense that central banking is just mechanically the accounting process for allocating proceeds stolen via inflation. Well, and then I dangerous. Stay away from that language, although I share I share your sentiment. <laughs> um, maybe there's some different different language for that. Uh, but it's dangerous in the sense that those proceeds are typically allocated towards funding political endeavors up to and including warfare. 
which I think by definition, there's nothing more dangerous. So does central banking inevitably suffer from K fabrication? And then does that, is that illusion or what do you call this? A distortion of reality? Does that then percolate up into the rest of political reality? Is that what we're seeing today with social justice warriors and the wokeism and all this not and well, the corruption of institutions? I mean, I think that's a little bit different. You, you have to appreciate the Bitcoin community has a problem, which is that it tends to want to see everything simplistically in terms of money. And what it has right is that money is a technology unlike any other. It's, you know, it, it's sort of, it's singular. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it captures a lot, maybe the lion's share, maybe almost everything, but it's, it isn't everything. So you have to be careful that the sort of maximalist perspective, um, whenever you say, well, it's all about money, look at how many species there are that don't use money. You know, the, in some sense, markets are the replacement for the world of selective pressures, red of, of tooth and claw. So if you think about the violence of the jungle, markets are the continuation of evolution by other means. Now, the um, the issue with central banking is, is that there, there is an ostensible reason to do it, which is that you want to make sure that the market doesn't seize up, you know, that too many people start to develop a preference for holding money and the market, that there aren't enough bills that are moving around in the system. And you say, okay, well, this is going to cause a recession. So we're going to both inject and remove liquidity as necessary. So there's this ostensible rationale about when to do it, when not to do it, when to let the line out and pull it in. But then that's super tempting, which is like, oh, are you telling me we can create the illusion of prosperity for several months in front of an election? Are you telling me that uh, we can bail out our friends in the banks and that they can hire us to give speeches after our terms expire and all this kinds of stuff? So that's, we haven't insulated these mechanisms from ourselves. And yes, there is a, there is a strict Keynesian case for central banking. And there is a, an anti-Keynesian case saying, you're never going to use it just like that. You know that you're going to be tempted to use it for all sorts of things for which it is not purposed. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. You describe markets as the continuation of evolution by other means, which I agree with. Uh, And I would argue that buying and selling is the exchange mechanism that's actually facilitating coordination in markets and creating this an organic evolution we call innovation, right? That's kind of the same thing. One's just biological, the other's technological, I guess. And they they affect one another, right? As we innovate new tools, it changes the course of our evolution. Well, mostly what the market does though, is it does the same thing as it did yesterday. So mostly the market is simply repeating things. Mm. This is the one to N part that Peter Thiel talks about. Right. And then there's the zero to one part, which is something new gets created, and then people will go on to um, routinize that thing until it becomes 
commodified and becomes mundane. Right. So it sort of has these two features. One is just keeping the world as it was yesterday for the most part. And second of all, improving tomorrow over today by rewarding people who bring new ideas and new ongoing concerns. So we could say there's the innovation phase, the zero to one invention, and then there's the one to many, which is kind of the commodification of these breakthroughs. Um, so, and I wonder if that has something to do with mimesis, right? <laughs> Marks, there's just these just these mimetic engines of people copying one another in a lot of ways. Well, the mimesis stuff, it's actually very interesting. Mimesis tends to crop up when if people were to do very original things, you wouldn't be able to compare them very well. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if everybody writes a beautiful song on the guitar, um, it's an entirely subjective decision as to which songs are considered more beautiful over time. On the other hand, if the question is who can shred the fastest, you can count notes per second. Right. You know, and slow it down. You can say, okay, well, this guy, Yingwei Malmsteen, he's the fastest or something like that. Mm -hmm. in, in such a circumstance, um, mimesis tends to get people to compete on common axes so that you can see who's doing better or worse. Like, how many square feet is your house is a measure that cuts across homes. Mm -hmm. So if you have two homes, one of them is in North Carolina and the other is in Uganda, you know, how do you compare them? It's not easy, but one thing you can do is you can look for something that transcends uh, the particulars. And I would say that a lot of what we see in the markets is people choosing to spread out that's sort of the anti-memetic. I want something different and unique, like in mm -hmm. clothes. On the other hand, people tend to say, but not so unique that I, I'm not perceived as being part of my group. Mm. So you have both a, uh, a force to copy and a force to innovate. Interesting. And I guess money in that sense is kind of the ultimate common access if you want to compare as many things as possible in the marketplace, at least you denominate it in money, determine the value of an asset or a liability net worth, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to, I mean, okay. I want to think through some of this market failure with you or maybe just how markets function in general. So I view this as we have a matrix of demand which are the wishes and wants of human beings superimposed on the available supplies of capital in the world. Okay. So this matrix of demand is basically, it's a voting system. People are voting through buying and selling, right? I sell a car, I'm telling the market, make less cars. I buy a house, I'm signaling to the market to make more houses. And this mechanism in the sphere of money is, mediated by the interest rate. So the interest rate is the price of money effectively. When we're saying that we need to give the government or some arbitrary authority the latitude to print money or change the money supply when there are market failures, this is something that is, it seems to me like unavoidably arbitrary, right? It's like, I don't know how you can give this power to anyone and it not be abused increasingly abused over time because it in, it's such an arbitrary decision to, to say hey we need more liquidity in the markets or we need less and it comes that decision comes to favor the self-interest of the individual or group deciding so you know how how can we have this power be responsibly deployed into the world because i can't see any way that it can be managed. But you're not going to like the answer. It's culture, right? I mean, there are all sorts of situations in which, like, let's take a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist can't blab about all the interesting things she's hearing about in her office. Mm -hmm. And you can say, well, okay, well, professionally, you could lose your license if you break patient uh, physician confidentiality. 
So that might be the regulatory mechanism, but there's also, if you found that that psychiatrist was saying, actually, I have a patient and I, I can't say the name or, and then they just started talking about some very personal details. You might say, well, I don't know whether they violated patient uh, physician confidentiality, but I know that I don't feel very good about that person's decision to share that information with the world. Mm -hmm. um, so you have a very strong culture of we can be trusted with things that other people cannot. The Swiss, for example, had a culture around private banking and secrecy. Now, you could say that that culture is a bad culture because it facilitated bad people parking their money in Switzerland, maybe. You could say that it's an interesting, neutral culture. You could say it's a very good culture because you could trust Swiss bankers to be uh, you know, alone with fantastic amounts of money and their culture would not allow them to even think a thought of misbehaving. Mm -hmm. We don't have a good culture of macro economics. We don't have a culture saying we must not come down on the side of the banks and the hedge funds. Or we have to take um, inequality seriously. Economics for years failed to take inequality seriously. Mm -hmm. That's why Piketty's work was so shocking because, you know, at one level, the level of inequality was insanely high, but at another level, it was just shocking to hear economists take responsibility for inequality because it had always been somebody else's problem. So, yes, I, I believe that um, what you're looking for is a culture where it would be unthinkable to use your fiduciary duty to enrich yourself and your friends. And once you lose a culture like that, it's very hard to uh, regain it. Mm -hmm. Okay, good point there. I think so, in my mind with the Swiss culture, you know, they have a country that was very well insulated from a top topography standpoint, kind of in the mountains. So it was a good place to put a secure bank and store bearer asset money. So my argument Austria again, shares several landlocked and alpine features with Switzerland, as you know. Exactly. So my perspective here is that the culture of Swiss banking and secret keeping is downstream of their realities, right? Both their physical realities of the land they inhabit and the technological realities of money at the time, like to be able to store gold a high concentration of economic value in one small place in a very secure physical custody. Yeah. I think that contributes to the development of Swiss culture in this sense. So maybe this is where you and I are divided. You see culture as being upstream. I see culture as being downstream of money and technological realities. That we're divided there. My guess is that both of us would see it as a feedback loop where culture influences yes. money and money influences culture. Yes. Agreed. Sorry, Robert, we're having trouble finding a disagreement, but we'll get there. <laughs> okay. So there's a feedback loop between culture and let's say the incentive systems, really, because ultimately we keep saying money, but in my mind, money is just the ultimate incentive system because it, it's, it's a call option on everything else, right? And so long as humans are acquisitive, yeah, money would be at the top of that hierarchy from a purely Darwinian standpoint. It's fungible freedom. Who wouldn't want it? Fungible freedom. All right. You've sure, given right? me a new definition to or a new answer to the question, what is money? So thank you for that. <laughs> Never heard that one before. Um, fiat currency then. So we've, again, back to this opportunity for deception we have divorced the symbol of money from its referent the dollar from gold this introduces what i describe as a pyramid scheme effectively as that you have one group that can produce these certificates at the expense of everyone else that's forced to use them doesn't this create the embedded growth obligation that you've described underpinning a lot of and, and maybe you could just speak to the relationship between the embedded growth obligation which we've which you put to the acronym ego 
Mm -hmm. It's very fitting. <laughs> Perhaps we can describe the relationship between the embedded growth obligation um, and key fabrication. And so, and where I'm going with this, like full transparency, is I see this pyramid scheme of fiat currency has not only does it have a built-in embedded growth obligation, but it's also increasing that embedded growth obligation because there's more seniorage, more interest. Um, and when it when it, you know it's harvesting the productive surplus from the economy. So when that surplus starts to run out, this thing really inflation explodes and eventually the whole system just ends in the crack up boom or hyperinflation. So relationship between, sorry, it's a long question, embedded growth obligation, K fabrication, and does the corruption of money or the manipulation of money not exacerbate that embedded growth obligation? Yeah, so what you're sort of saying is, is that this is the ultimate uh, consequence of embedded growth obligations. Not that this is one, but that because you can't meet your target any other way, you can print. Right. As long as you still have the guns, you can still run your printing press. Right. Right. Because you can force people to use your, you can say, you, you must pay your taxes in this thing that I know how to print. Yes. Um, and you can force people to use it as legal tender. So that's a response. Now, the way I've set it up is, is that the... Society is being undermined by the embedded growth obligations. We thought that growth was infinite, peculiarly friendly to the United States in our case. Um, and we built a world around it. Now those targets can't be hit. So that's why you had an original institutional narrative, which was keeping us on track. I mean, we, we actually went to war in World War II, we actually reached the moon with the Apollo program. There's all sorts of stuff that was real that we used to do. Right. So the institutional narrative that was gated starts to erode and it has to become, you know, to use the words from professional wrestling, it has to become a work rather than a shoot. A shoot is something real and a work is something scripted. Mm. So that's why the gated institutional narrative or gin becomes k-fabricated is is that it had to switch to start explaining extraction ex as opposed to production when we went from being a productive society to a mostly extractive society the narrative had to change because as you say um the uh the idealism of every age is the cover story of its greatest thefts and the, those thefts have been the undermining the hollowing out the the seniorage the dilution the denaturing of our society and a lot of it has taken place through money so now you have this thing called the gin that is protected by what i call the disc or the distributed idea suppression complex if you try to put together what's going on with the fed and the bureau of labor statistics in our policymaking apparatus, you'll immediately be told that you're a crazy crackpot, gold bug, Ayn Rand loving super freak of some kind. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that? Because the biggest penalties come from trying to say, can this story be made sensible? If you think about it, the universal crime of this moment is trying to make the world understandable and therefore actionable. Mm -hmm. Presumably, if we had macroeconomists who were miscomputing the rate of inflation or meddling in our society, we could get them to stop. And so everybody who has a game that's ongoing is calling everybody who's trying to stop that game a crackpot. Mm -hmm. But that's, in some sense, what you guys are doing in the Bitcoin. You're the community. You're the new gold bugs. And you're saying, I don't understand. Why are you forcing us? to transact in a currency that only you can print. That feels like I'm being forced to devalue myself as a protection racket. It sounds like the mafia. 
Now, if I trusted our central bankers a bit more, which I don't, um, I would say you guys are being alarmist. Mm. Um, but I don't think it's alarmist given what we've seen. In other words, there isn't a culture that says uh, that central banking is a sacred responsibility. Um, there's sort of a feeling that central banking is something that the big boys in finance put together to protect their own interests before they protect anyone else's. That's right. And, you know, I'm in this very uncomfortable position where I can see the problems with our leadership. I can tell you that there are situations in which, I mean, I could imagine a coin, for example, that had algorithmic central banking, so that if too many people were holding the coin and not transacting, um, the uh, rate at which new coins could be mined uh, would increase up until the point where people start spending again. You could imagine this being put beyond reach of, of human beings uh, so that it's not discretionary to line the pockets of the few. We can, we can probably separate those out by some sort of future innovation in, in, um, in sort of blockchain decentralized space. Um, but in general, most of, most of my libertarian and Bitcoin friends take the attitude of, why do you imagine we would ever get better than the central bankers we have? Isn't it just better to shut them all out? And I don't know the answer to that. If you have, um, if you imagine that the world were really based on very hard money and we started to have a seize up in the economy where people were trying to hold on to cash and they couldn't meet their obligations, you, you, you'll find that very quickly um, there are real downsides to having very hard cash as well. That's not going to go down well in the Bitcoin community because everybody believes the harder, the better. We just want to mediate consequence. And I, I don't disagree with a lot of that. But you might remember that cash only makes sense. Money only makes sense with the barrel of a gun. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? Well, your property rights have to do with the fact that something is enforcing your right mm. to say that you own your property. Right. If you get rid of violence, if you get rid of the state, how, what enforces that, you know, somebody, somebody rolls in and says, Hey, I don't think you're actually capable of holding this piece of land. You lack the stomach. You don't have enough friends. You don't have the firearms. I've got a bunch of well-trained mercenaries who think that your house looks like a great place to spend the winter. What are you going to do now? Yeah, this is an excellent point. Um, something I've explored a lot in recent series that all property rights are at the leisure of the state, effectively. Um, except, and Bitcoin would be the exception, right? Bitcoin is the first property right that's emerged independent of the monopoly on violence. And that you, the Bitcoin mining network is what's preserving your property right. Now, it has nothing to do with any national government whatsoever. Um, now, you could argue that there are some second order effects of Bitcoin mining being peaceable because it's within the boundaries of a nation state. But the direct provision of that property right is purely a product of, of Bitcoin mining. So what if, let's start with this. So what you just described is this perhaps having an algorithmic mechanism that could replace central bank arbitrariness is the, I, I'm stuck on this argument because it seems to me like the natural interest rate as the price of money determined on the free market is an adequate incentive to see that no one hoards money. I know hoarding is kind of a, a weird word too, because it's arbitrary. When does saving become hoarding? You know, who's to say how much purchasing power you need to, you should save or not. But That's the if, Ministry of Propaganda. Yeah. So if people, and here's the thing, if a market actor is holding money, there's a lot of reservation demand for money yeah. that's taking supply off the market. If there's an increase in demand for money or loanable funds, which is the same thing, then the interest rate goes up. So it's creating an incentive for those people hoarding or holding money to loan it out. Is that not, and, and I've, I've talked to 
people about central banking that say that that is, for whatever reason in the market for money, that is not adequate. The pricing system works in every other market in the world, but not money. Look, Ergo, we need a central bank. This is this very unpleasant place to be. Many of us have a, have, have a desire to shut down excuse making on behalf of economists. Because we, we know that they're going to use any foot they can get into the door to pry it open. And so the desire is to slam the door hard. You see the same thing in religion, right? And science, where science, many scientists take the, play, the point of view that they don't want to give religion anything at all. Like it's a pure evil because they think if a toe gets through the door, then we'll lose science. And, you know, I, I think something is going on here in, in, in libertarian world where the sense is if we, if we admit that there is a function of taxes, if there is a function of having a standing army, that central banking has a, an ostensible purpose, then we know where that's going to go. So we're just going to shut the door on that absolutely and completely. Now, you, you might make the argument that even if there's a theoretical possibility of doing algorithmic central banking or non, non-predatory central banking, that you, should, you still shouldn't do it because the odds that it will be misused are so much greater than any benefit that might be given. That's a different style of argument, but then it's just a pure bad. Um, but, you know, this is part of my discomfort with, with the Bitcoin world is that you don't know what a purely algorithmic world would look like. I mean, we already have certain sorts of fears that what if the, um, what if the value in a Bitcoin world or some other blockchain world started to ignore the cost of producing tokens in terms of the ecological damage? It becomes so energy intensive. Again, I, I don't want to say that this is a Bitcoin problem because people who don't like Bitcoin will use the environment to try to shut down Bitcoin. But on the other hand, you can see a formal argument that says, um, what if somebody created a coin where if you could prove that you know three people got murdered, um, that you were entitled to print a new token or something, you know? Whatever the formal rules are, are going to encode what happens next and you won't be able to stop it. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you have a social media uh, company that's based on a blockchain and decentralized computing and you think, great, we've gotten around censorship. You could easily find that on that social network very shortly, all sorts of terrible things are happening, but you've locked yourself out of it right? Just the way nobody controls Bitcoin, nobody might control your new social network. And now it starts doing things you never predicted. So my concern is, is that a lot of us are so sick of the ordinary normie world that we fully embrace anything that comes from the periphery, like Bitcoin. You may come to regret those decisions when you realize that you're the new big dog. Like in a certain sense, Google and Facebook didn't really understand that they were enormous, powerful companies. They, 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 for a period of time, they fought like startups. They didn't realize that they had become the man. And, you know, I worry that the sort of libertarian stuff it was very exciting when El Salvador went for Bitcoin, right? But if you suddenly found out that there was like, I don't know, Crypto, cryptological backdoor in, in, in the standards that are underlying or that some new thing happens where there's a change in quantum computing and the blockchain collapses. I don't know. All of the things that could potentially happen are things that the elders of the Bitcoin community have to consider very seriously. Um, many of you will have said, Look, it's, it's gone on for over a decade. None of those bad things that we all can, can understand have happened. I think this is a pretty good indication that we're good to go. Maybe. I don't, I don't, I don't know, like Nassim seems to know, that this is, has to end in disaster. 
I don't see that, like, you know, the maximalists say that it has to end in happiness. I think it could end, they could end it in disaster. It might not. It's new, it's novel, but you got, you, you have to take on the responsibilities of being the big dogs. You're, you're now, this isn't the scrappy period of Bitcoin. Bitcoin has gotten very serious, very mainstream. I agree with that. Um, I do view Bitcoin as still, it has become much more serious, but it's still going through these scrappy stages and that it's, you know, it's a sub $1 trillion market competing to be 100 trillion plus, let's say in general. Um, okay. So wait, wait, what's the approximate size of Bitcoin in terms of US dollars? The market cap Bitcoin. today? Yeah is probably in the 800 seven to 800 billion dollar range all right so i appreciate what you're saying but let's just think about this this thing that i got laughed at for talking about in like 2010 2011 on wall street is hundreds of billion dollars in size mm -hmm. you know just if you think about where it's been and where it might go, plan for your future success, guys. You know, and when you blow through a trillion, well, it's only a trillion, then it'll be 10 trillion, you know, or whatever it is. So you, you got to start thinking like, like the big dogs. Mm -hmm. That's what was so upsetting about the Elon kiss, you know, is that it's like, no, no, no. You're the guys. Don't talk about the fact that Elon gave you a kiss. If you're, if you're going to be the man, be the man. Yeah, at the end of our last conversation, the points you brought up about Bitcoin adopting or adapting to the existing reality, you know, in terms of sharing um, or, or sponsoring an economics share and things like that. I mean, you're where your head's at is where i think i'm glad we're having this conversation because bitcoiners do need to think more like this right we need to look around the corner and say if this thing's 10 or 100 trillion dollars what are we doing with that capital right how are we influencing the shape of the world in the course of history um well first buy the toys and get it out of your system <laughs> but when you're done buying toys we got a lot of work to do we really do yeah yeah yeah, no, no Lambos. Uh, let's just focus on the work, I think. So, all right. No, no, no. Where... I think I, no, we need to focus a little bit on the Lambos. People, I, people need to feel rich. They need to feel safe. They need to feel secure. They need to feel good. Yes. They need, they took a lot of crap from their relatives, their spouses, their employers about their focus on crypto. So they've got a chip on their shoulder for a reason. We got to make sure that they're entitled to take a few victory laps. In a Lambo. <laughs> yeah, backwards. And they can crash it at the end and say, don't worry, I've got three more at home. But then, sooner or later, fund some physics, save some lives, do something else. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, okay. we, we, we have to get off this planet and we're not going to do it uh, buying fancy cars. We have to start thinking about how to keep the planet from blowing up while we're here. Yes. That may involve climate, may involve disease, certainly involves the markets money we've got to worry about culture and then ultimately we've got to diversify because we can't all stay here and that's what you guys got to get to I hear you loud and clear on that one so i think this your point there that people need to feel rich need to feel safe etc this segues well into what i i consider this is the bedrock of peace actually is the stability of rules. So the example I like to give is that if you're sitting down to play poker and if the hand ranking is changing every few hands at the whim of the casino or one of the players, then that game is inherently unstable, right? Players are going to abdicate. They're going to leave the table. It's only when the rules are steady and predictable that players can engage in a, in a game. Right. And a, and a sustainable game. You can sit there and play hands for many hours. So there are risks in Bitcoin. 
you know, 13 years old. We don't know if any of these things can happen that you've outlined. But I, I guess the Bitcoin perspective would be that we know that fiat ends badly. Mm. It's a virtual certainty. I mean, it's, and we have, not only do we have a priori rationalistic basis for understanding, you know, the Austrian business cycle theory and the crack up boom, but we also have a plethora of economic history to support that. So it, I don't think there's anything that I can think of, at least in the sphere of economics, that's more certain than the failure and pain that fiat currency causes ultimately. This is like the one lesson we've been learning over and over again as humans. We cannot print money to paper over our problems. It just does not work. So I think the Bitcoiner perspective may be that leadership itself is the problem. Mm -hmm. We keep looking for new leaders, new guy, new this, new that. new. But if we just get rid of this concept of top-down economics and, you know, largely through the implementation of a money that can't be corrupted or monopolized, that we just get a better bottom-up outcome. Yeah, well, you know, this is Satoshi is the George Washington of money. George <laughs> Washington's greatest accomplishment was locking himself out of an additional term mm -hmm. and saying, no, I prefer to retire. We're not going to have a struggle over power, and I don't want to die in office. And in a certain sense, Satoshi locking... Satoshi, whatever Satoshi is, collective individual, cryptic government project, we don't know. Um, that by locking itself out, it sort of, it has this Washingtonian uh, kind of a feel to it. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the, that's a big appeal to the Bitcoin community, that it's got this miraculous origin story, just the way the United States had the origin story that uh, our first president um, retired. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think money, since it is a social construct, it needs a mythological bedrock of some kind. And Satoshi, you know, had he been an identified individual, it would have not, Bitcoin would not have the same level of decentralization it currently enjoys just by virtue of that guy existing, right? As, as being someone that could be coerced or compelled to sabotage the project in one way or another. Maybe, or it could be, you know, a lot of pretty amazing people have given their lives for others. Um, they don't tend to be in government. But if you think about, for example, the Chernobyl guys who built the, sarto the sarcophagus around this failed nuclear reactor and paid through radiation poisoning. Mm -hmm. you know, they died to save many. Mm -hmm. There are many people you can trust in a position um, who volunteer to fight in our you know, armed forces, policemen, doctors. The key problem is that the people who go into central banking tend to be power obsessed. They don't tend to come from this culture of... Um, of universal betterment. And perhaps that's our fault for not celebrating these people. But like, if you, if you thought about it, would you want to be in a position where you were very rich and very hated? So for example, I would imagine OJ Simpson has probably still got a fair amount of money. He, he could probably make appearances now and generate money. But many people see him as a, uh, murder and you know in a certain sense i guess i have the question is it really all about money doesn't it matter that um certain people are highly regarded and that's something that's very i guess it really matters it really matters that society holds certain people in high regard and i would like our central bankers, if we're going to have central bankers, to be people who are scrutinized by the society in which they live. You know, if you think about how many people were appreciative to Paul Volcker for doing unpopular things that needed to be done. You know, ringing, ringing inflation out of a system. I don't know, there, there is an older culture that's very hard to tell younger people about which, 
you know, part of it had to do with the idea that the community keeps your history and your story. Mm. Right. So that when, when somebody, you know, meets you and you have the last name Lincoln, it means something, mm. you know, you're the descendant of somebody who did something very difficult and paid with his life. And do we look back on Lincoln and saying, you know, what a sucker, the guy, guy was, you know, set himself up to be killed. What a moron. If that's where we are, where we don't actually see uh, a role for public spirited individuals, then, you know, maybe, maybe we should just do Bitcoin, but it's not going to be a great world. I think it's very important to recognize that, um, Bitcoin is having a very easy time making an argument because our leaders at this moment are so terrible. It's still hard to make the argument, but it's having a much easier time than it would be having in any other period where we had better leaders. But the way I view Bitcoin is that in many ways, it's, it's just a play um, on, on the incompetence and lack of ethics of our banking class. We know they're going to print. Yeah, we know that they can't do anything else. Yes, agreed. Um, and so to your point about those going into central banking that are power hungry. Yeah, I think the Bitcoiner answer to this is like, well, just close that avenue. <laughs> close yeah. that option as burn being it down. Well, not burn it down. Just look, here's a course of business. It's the biggest business right, so, in the world. All right. All right. So close um, it down. So well, not not even close it down. If you just if people have Stop an option, central banking. If people have Stop an option banking. to hold yeah. the money that can't be inflated, then just give people that option and let the market sort it out. And then the and this is again, when that option is closed, it's like the power hungry central banker doesn't have the option to go into that business anymore and get rich. So he's going to go do something non-coercive and presumably I, look productive. I, I, I understand i understand the idea that the market has its own means of working everything out i think what i'm not understanding and this is not peculiar to money and to bitcoiners is that people are now talking in very simple terms at a very earnest level like you're having people say we should open the borders we should have an open border policy and you're thinking do you not understand what that would do or somebody else will say uh I think all tax is theft. You say, wow, so no taxes? Yeah, yeah, zero. Taxes should be zero. Okay. <laughs> How are you going to raise an army? Mm. Oh, well, people should, everybody should choose to do what they want to do, you know, and then you try to make sense of it. Or I, I think armies are bad. We, we're way beyond that. People have moved into this kind of utopian mindset which is not very serious. And, and I think that, you know, we have to look at Bitcoin as existing alongside fiat. And in part, Bitcoin's success has to do with the problems of fiat and capitalizing upon. Them. Right? So in this world, I suppose, um, I, I suppose I just want less extreme thinking. Mm. You're going to have institutions, you're going to have taxes, you're going to have market failures, you're going to have some degree of monetary management. And right now we're having a problem where we've got a leadership class that's terrible, that wants all sorts of authoritarian power well beyond what's needed to manage the world. And we also, I think, don't have a very talented leadership class. Mm. So this is a disaster, but I think that the, the heterodox community is taking away the message of just burn it all down, put it all on a blockchain, let markets handle everything. Now, I, I don't think you'd want to live in the world that you would be creating. You Fair. see, it's a little bit like if you're on a giant cruise ship, okay, and you jump around, like you take an aerobics class, the effect of your jumping around on a giant cruise ship is not very significant. You can neglect it because the, sh the ship isn't going to respond much. Mm -hmm. 
if you end up in a rowboat and you try doing your aerobics class in a rowboat, you're going to find that every motion of yours actually affects the entire boat. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned that Bitcoin is getting big and more powerful. Bitcoiners are getting more sophisticated. And very soon you're going to be in a position where you, you were thinking in terms of, oh, we're on a cruise ship so we can afford to you know, jump around. And now we're actually the ship. We're much bigger than we mm. ever thought we were. We're going we're gonna to matter. And I, I'm very worried about putting utopian thinking into practice at scale. Mm. 